Carry nearly 80 gigs of data in my head. You're in the mainframe. It's eating through Greg's entire system. Access encoded. Gigabyte of RAM should do the trick. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. We're in. Hello, and welcome to We're In, a podcast that gets inside the brightest minds in cybersecurity. I'm Jeremiah Rowe. And I'm Bella Deshans-Cook. Today, we're talking with Matt Mitchell, founder of Crypto Harlem and a tech fellow at the Build Program of the Ford Foundation. Matt works on digital security training programs and security measures for the Ford Foundation's grantees. He's also been a leading voice in protecting the Black community from surveillance and working with activists on digital security, encryption, and privacy. In fact, after we interviewed him, Matt received a Pioneer Award from the Electronic Frontier Foundation for his work. This was such an eye-opening interview. Uh, but first, a quick word from our sponsor. We're In is brought to you by Synac, the premier crowdsourced platform for on-demand security expertise. Synac delivers 24-7 testing, intelligence, and vulnerability management from a global network of researchers whose work is enhanced by smart technologies to accelerate your critical cybersecurity missions. And now here are your hosts, Bella and Jeremiah. Matt, thank you so much for joining us again. Welcome to the show. We are We're In, and uh, this is my super awesome co-host, Bella Deshants-Cook. Hey, Jeremiah. Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's really great to see both of you today. I'm really excited to get to know you a little bit more. I think we can just jump right in if that's cool with you. Can you tell me exactly how a hacker ends up working at the Ford Foundation? Yeah, they didn't know. So now my job's over. So thanks a lot. <laughs> you heard it here first. Sorry, Ford. Oops. Yeah, no, no. Um, in all seriousness, well, the Ford Foundation, for people who are listening who don't know, they're an institutional philanthropy. They've been around for a very long time. Started by that homie who invented the car, his son, Edsel. So it's a long time ago, you know, Henry Ford. And um, what they do today is they support the fight against inequality. That's all they do. That's their mission statement. It's pretty simple. And how do they do that? They do that by bringing people together, allowing different minds and different movements and different things to strategize. They do that through financial support, 500 million US dollars a year to nonprofits around the world. And, um, you know, they do that through, you know, the different things that they create, research, et cetera, for the field, for all people. And philanthropy is kind of like, social justice, positive, nonprofit, but like working at a bank at the same time. And they have their own concerns when it comes to cybersecurity, but they have an amazing team there that keeps them safe. But what about the grantee partners? What about the people we support out in the field? And there's a lot of reasons why that becomes really difficult, mostly because they're so different and you have no influence, power, or control over them, nor should you. So what I do as a tech fellow is I bring tech, you know, just drop that bouillon cube that is the flavor of tech, into this old kind of industry, uh, or older industry, I should say. And um, there's a lot of tech fellows doing different things, but as a hacker and someone who's an expert on cybersecurity, I focus on how do we keep our grantee partners safe? What are tools and resources we can build and create for them and the world? And so that's my day job. It's pretty cool. I was kind of perusing through your website, which is CryptoHarlem.com, by the way. And as I was going through there, I noticed a little snippet from... Uh, Mr. Robot. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. That is sick. It is. That is so cool. I never even picked that up before. And I've seen like every one of those episodes probably 15 times. And that's a little Easter egg that I just never picked up. So for those of you listening, season three, episode one, look for it. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even see it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm lucky, like, I'm pretty humble, but I'm lucky to have been around for a while and met some really interesting people and worked on some really serious things, you know? And um, yeah, like, they had called me because they film in New York. You know, I'm based in New York City, you know, Crypto Harlem for a reason. And they were like, hey, Matt, you got to come through. We're filming, you know? And I was like, oh, that'd be so dope. Let's get But um, I'm not in the country, so... And then they were like, yeah, well, we can't hold production back so you could oh, be in that no. episode. I was like, wait, 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 I'll, I'll come back. You know. So uh, it, then they were like, well, as soon as I got back, I called them. And I was like, yo, let's go. You have any more episodes? They're like, oh, yeah, we're filming still, but we film in L.A. now. Like, so they, they do like a West Coast, <laughs> East Coast thing. And they, were, they had wrapped, New York production wrapped. So they were like, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll find a way to, you know give you a little homage, pay you a little shine. And um, I, so then after I watched the first episode, like everyone else does when it, you know, when it premieres and uh, they wrote me like, yo, did you see it? Did you get it? And I was like, yeah. Huh? You know? <laughs> and I'm, I already know that they like, they're, they drop all these little <laughs> things in it. I didn't even see it. And uh, I watched it frame by frame. I was like, what are they talking yeah, about? Yeah. And then I caught it. Yeah. It was so smooth. Yeah. Yeah. It was really great. I loved it. And looking at that photo, I'm like, oh my gosh. Like, so I'm I'm actually gonna go back probably tonight and watch it again so I can pick that out myself. Yeah. Speaking of cybersecurity though, right? I'm really interested to hear about how you got into cybersecurity and then sort of working at places like, you know, the New York Times and CNN. I mean, to me, that that's a very sort of interesting career path. How did how did all that come about? I was really into what how things work and what's inside of things, right? And I used to take my toys apart and all that kind of thing. And you know that book, like how things work, like the little illustrations for kids, like that's me, you know what I'm saying? Like we had a, one computer for my whole school. It was a really old computer uh, back in the days, in the, in the 80s, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm, I'm older. So um, back now everyone's got like 3,000 computers in their, in their pocket. But back then it was one computer. I didn't understand how it worked. I became obsessed with it. I asked my folks, yo, get me a computer. They were like, we're immigrants. We can't afford a computer. But we can get you a magazine subscription about computers. So I'm like, I'm watching other people enjoy their computers, right? I'm seeing code that I can't enter into my invisible computer. But it, it sparked something in me. And I would like do anything, you know, like I would beg, borrow anything to like get on a computer keyboard. I even drew a little cardboard computer keyboard and typed things for fun on it, you know? Like I was like Rocky in a, a montage training with Apollo, you know what I'm saying? So eventually I didn't realize it, but I just developed these skills. And that led to me thinking, okay, I want to make some, you know, first I, I didn't have any computer, so I had to get on a computer somehow. Then eventually I built my own computer. I didn't have any software. How do you get software? So, you know, people I knew were like, oh, I'll tell you where, you know, I know there's, there's ways and where's to get, you know what I'm saying? So I just developed actual computer hacking skills. 2600 is based in Long Island. That's where I, that's where I grew up, you know, when I was a kid. And so I grew, you know, I developed actual computer hacking skills and um, I just needed to find a way to use it. I used my computer skills to help activists and nonprofits back then as a teenager. And I, I got my first job a little bit later. And my first job was working at this big corporation. And they were like, yeah, you're just going to be rolling out machines on desktops, whatever. I was like, oh, that's easy. But then, a, you know, a little bit later, they had a meeting and they were like, now we're going to tell you what your real job is. And I was like, my real job? Oh, this is weird, right? And then they were like, your real job is basically like corporate surveillance of all employees and staff and reporting all people, which is a thing. Every company, if you work for one, has 
someone protecting the company's interest. And there's a, you know, insider threats a thing. Sometimes they overinvest in that team until they become the problem, right? They become the danger. And I was working for that squad. So, you know, my background, I was like, nah, this is messed up. I've got to tell people about this. But nobody back then, it's like, it would be very strange if someone talked to you about all this stuff. So, um, so I was just like, look, I, it just kicked me off on this thing where I must use these skills to raise awareness about how bad things are. My parents, we're involved in like conflict and war and all that other stuff. And we, we know the harms that come from, you know, when good intentions go bad. And that's what this is an example of. So I just commit my whole, my whole life mission to push it back against all that stuff. Uh, a few years ago, you were really active in hosting crypto parties, uh, and you did a bunch of those in Harlem. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what are those, how do they work, who do they benefit, and if they're still going on? Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, of course. So, you know, what is a crypto party? Props to Asher Wolf, who without there be no crypto parties, you know? So, you know, she's this woman from Australia who's just like, hey, I'm reading about this uh, Snowden thing, and I'm concerned about invasive listening and electronics and I want to know more like I don't understand like how what can I do to protect myself and of course the internet was being the horrible internet boo shut up hey noob you don't know you're talking about whatever and um that's like the obvious wrong answer from mostly people who have no idea what they're talking about honestly but that's besides the point so the idea of crypto parties was idea like, you know, hey what if I just got other people who are curious like me you know if you're Asha and like just sat down and just had living rooms. We just talked about stuff we learned. We looked it up together. And that's how the whole crypto party thing was born, for real, for real. And um, they're all around the world. I watched a video about the crypto parties that was really interesting. And there was a moment in the video where you talked about how, in Harlem at least, to get folks interested in the meetings, you were handing out flyers on the streets and going to leaders within the community in person and spreading the word rather than spreading the word on Twitter and Facebook and other sites that like I often see events talked about. Um, and I'm wondering if you could explain the importance of that approach. All crypto parties for all different types of people, but Crypto Harlem is for Black folks. And if you're part of a marginalized community, you have the dominant culture that you touch on. You know, like it's kind of like kids who speak maybe a, a different language, their, their native tongue at home, but then perfect school English or whatever, right? So you have the dominant culture that you live in and you must survive in. And then you have this other culture. And for Black folks and for all marginalized communities that exist, and it's not online. It's uh, There's no Google for that. And if you want to reach the real people, it's all through networks of trust. It's all through these different institutions that mean something in that culture. And that's why the crypto party that I would do in Harlem, it was three hours long. And to go back and circle back to that question, yes, we're still doing it, but now it's online. That's why I literally just got off like a, an hour ago before this. Now it's on Fridays at one o'clock on Twitch instead of at a community center at Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Boulevard where they intersect, which is really cool, but it wasn't like by planning or anything. And, um, you know, when you when you have a crypto party and you're reaching your community, you need to go to the barbershops and the beauty salons and the churches and the mosque and the, the, you know, and in some communities, it's the soccer fields where the parents are there and the whatever, you know, and um, we, we're really serious about that mission. So the crypto part is three hours long. I spent three hours on the streets just walking around, just talking to people. 
you know, just talking, just having a conversation like, hey, do you have a phone? Do you ever have thoughts or questions about how it works? And do you have any ideas of what negative things you might be bringing in by bringing this technology into your home, into your life, et cetera? And did you know that there's a place you can go to just get definitive answers and be with like-minded people, et cetera? I love that. I think that's hugely impactful. And more so is, is it says to people's point, like, if you want to get out there and make change, you got to make change. And so I just, I just love that. But I'd like to circle back around to this. So there's a lot of, a lot of your work, it revolves around the intersection between sort of technology and social justice in this way, right? And so I'd really like to talk about the role of hackers or people working in the cybersecurity space. And to that point, like, we have a special skill set that many others just do not have, frankly. And so with that, how can we apply that to obtaining justice and ensuring it's used for good? We do have a special skill set. It's kind of like we're time-traveling wizards. <laughs> and you go back to a day where everyone leaves their things unlocked and their doors unlocked and, you know, very simple times, right? Um, but you know there's this, like, evil wizards, evil time-travelers about to hit that village or that town or whatever, right? But then you're like... I get paid nine to five to make stars show up here. So that's what I'm going to do. Wiggle my fingers, you know. So that just, it just doesn't seem right. It doesn't really make sense. But that's what we're doing. And um, we have, you know, I'm, I'm a big comic book nerd. You know, my, my pops always said, like, I don't care what you read. As long as you read, you have to read every day. Like, insane pages, right? So I would read, like, Marvel comics and DC and all that good stuff. And, you know, Stan Lee, you know, like... With uh, great power comes great responsibility and all that other stuff. It's it's really true. Yeah, it's really true. And you can destroy the planet with the things that we know, with the skills that we have. It doesn't take that much. Like, you know, industrial control, water filtration systems, nuclear reactors, even someone's pri- like private thoughts and, and feelings that could be exposed them and ruin their career, right? All of those things, our weird hobby, our strange interests, it just happens to be that glue that maintains all things, right? And not to go into George Lucas, the force, you know, but it's similar. So you must ask yourself, like, yeah, chase the bag. You know, definitely secure that, get that money. We're at this point. You got to ask yourself, how many hours do I spend working for that money? And then how many of those hours in my year do I spend protecting what I care about? I mean, it could be a conversation with a family member or a friend about a password manager. It could be, you know, again, whatever community you care about, whatever, you know, the great thing about social justice is it takes so many forms and looks so different. So if you're a person of faith and you're like, oh, what about my my religious community, right? If you're, uh, uh, you know, someone who just has, is like a fan of a certain thing, it's like, oh, I like that be- baseball team. Well, what's their cybersecurity look like? You know, so like it, it's it's really about, taking this skill that we have and applying it in any way towards something bigger than yourself. And it's no disrespect, like, yeah, you deserve to make money to put shirts on your backs and food in your stomach or whatever, right? But we're at a point where it's bigger than that. And we're all going to be sitting around a fireplace wondering what happened when there's no computers and it's like the Mad Max post-apocalyptic future. And don't say, oh, I should have done something, but it's too late. So, you know, now's the time. And it's actually not that hard. Like there are people who are just like, look, I'm looking for anyone to work at my hospital. We have an issue with cybersecurity. We want to get ahead of ransomware. 
It's like, it doesn't mean you got to quit your gig. Maybe you just say, hey, look, I don't want the job. I could talk to you for like an hour a month, you know, something like that. Or, hey, like, you know, there's a shelter for um, refugees or survivors of domestic abuse. And we have questions and we have, I, you know, it's like, you know what? I'm, just take it upon yourself to ask. Yeah. Would you take an unsolicited one hour professional opinion? You know? That's great. I personally have never thought of that. I mean, I've done those things for some of my local community things that I attend. Like I'll notice certain things that I'm like, oh, that's, that's, that's really bad. I've got, I've got to say something. And I go up and I say something, but I've never thought of like, hey, in addition to me saying something, let me, let me say, would you be interested in just sort of a free like, like session just so I could sit down and help educate your staff, yourself, and, and those who are maybe providing technical services for your organization? I've never thought of that. I think there's also like a, a, this element of like something that I've done in the last few years is just sort of trying to make cybersecurity and personal online security part of like typical conversations that I have with my family and friends. Because something that I've realized is that so many of my family and friends and like just people in my community in general, they're afraid of their interactions online or they see things that are scary and they don't know what to do or who to ask. Oh, exactly. And sometimes they're afraid to ask me because they're like, oh, I have this really stupid question about how the internet works. And I think kind of you know, helping where we can, but also creating these communities of like, hey, like, I know a little bit about this. Let's talk about it. This is just, this is as normal as talking about our jobs, our hobbies, our interests. I think that helps. (laughs) An open dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing special about us, you know, like we have hubris and conceit and really into this skill set, but it's very teachable. And there was a day before you knew the most awesome thing, you know, and you, you were just, and if you keep going back, reverse, you're them. So I think we forget that. You have to hold on to that a little bit if you are going to talk to someone who doesn't come from this, or you will freak them out. Because we've seen the headlines, right? More frequently, we're seeing all these things about hacks and all but we understand those headlines. Imagine you didn't know anything about this invisible boogie monster of bacteria living on your hand, let's say, right? And it makes you suddenly sick. And some, you know, you're you're from a culture that never had Western medicine and someone from Doctors Without Borders or something is talking to you. And then they're like, yeah, there's these invisible monsters on your hand that made everyone sick. And all you got to do is dip your hands in the normal water, but with this stuff called soap. You'd be like, what is going on? I can't handle this. So it's also about um, being able to break it down and be patient and understanding, right? But I love that you do that, Bella. <laughs> Thank you. I think I really like that you brought that up. It's that that culture of like openness and learning and group learning, because like you said, as soon as you start coming at a problem with like, I know all the stuff and like, oh, my goodness, y'all don't know anything. People are not going to be in a position to learn. Um, it's interesting to think about that. Yeah. You, you know, your doctor doesn't talk about like, let's start with uncurable diseases like no like they talk about hey let's talk about health and things you can do to have a better life step by step right so to that point of helping people better understand what in your opinion matt are three actions that people can take to protect themselves and their privacy online one of them is i used to i used to be the director of digital safety and privacy at this um ngo called tactical tech and they made this thing called datadetox.org so you go to datadetox.org, and it's just simple steps. 
and I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll tell you like my personal three though. One of them would just be like, if you really want to double down, just hit that website. But I think the first thing you can do is just use a password manager, right? And it's everything in your life needs to have a unique password. Just if you look at what the average person does, watching streaming video or, you know, interfacing with an email or social media, those things have to have completely unrelated passwords because hackers, when we get leaks, you know, we get breaches and we see these passwords, we're human beings. You know, your password is a sports team, one, two, three, uh, another sports team, four, five, six. We get the pattern. We got this, right? So it's better to have a computer make your password up and not just a locker for your password, but it generates your password. And there's free ones out there too. So there's no reason not to have one. Like they're all basically the same. Um, there's some minor differences by company on, you know, who funds them and what their motivation is or whatever. And some of them offer a lot of free services to different communities, right? Like whether you're a journalist or uh, you work at a nonprofit or you're involved in anything pro-democracy, you know, there's ways you can get discounts. Sometimes you've got to email sales if you can't find it by search engine and be, or just be real and be like, look, you know, $8 a month is too much for me. How can we get this down? Most of them, I've helped people do this. They actually write them back and they actually hook them up with a code or something. It's real. So... Password manager, if I only had one thing I could ever tell someone, it's that because the breach world is real. I mean, I just wade through those those bins and so many paste and so many so many um, password leaks. There's nothing you can do to stop a password leak. It's going to happen. So you might as well make it that you you limit it. So not the sticky note on your computer. <laughs> well, the sticky note on your computer's got some uh, it's pretty posy, you know, like that sticky note. I can't see it if I'm a hacker. It's not electronic. And so if you have a book in your house with just names of the site, the password and the and the username and they have nothing to do with each other, you've won. That's a password manager. I'm cool with that. Like, you know, I'm pretty um, I'm pretty realistic. If you look at the number of cyber attacks that came from sticky notes on personal computers, it's zero. Maybe if it's work and you've got, you know, you got a spy at work or some industrial espionage, different story. Don't put a don't put a sticky note on the nuclear codes. But hashtag insider threat. Exactly. <laughs> but uh, yeah, yeah. So I would say that's number one. Number two, outside of the password manager, if I was just say tell someone like what to do, it would again be like locking down that account further with a two factor, you know, like what we hear, use a second factor. I would just say, if you don't know what it is, just learn about it. There's a website called 2FA.directory. Instead of .com, it's .directory. And it's a it used to be called something else, but they lost the domain. So it's 2FA.directory. And it's just a list of Hey, I banks, every bank that has any kind of two factor. And if it doesn't, you can advocate for it by clicking on a button. Right. So, you know, like it just makes life really easy. So it's the number two, the letter F, the letter A dot directory. Boom. You go in, you type Facebook and you just click on the docs as the documents on two factor that Facebook writes. Because every website has this because they know that it's the number one way to take over um, the accounts on the site. So they have to create a whole documentation on it, and they have to create steps to do it, and they have to spend tons of money and engineering time on making it work. But they don't make it part of onboarding because they're taught, like, the more stops, the more people drop off. So they don't make it part of when you make your account. So you got to go in, you got to type in your thing, you got to read and set it up. And this is kind of like the search engine for all of them. So I would say 2FA, get a second factor. If you're not doing it at all, get a text code. If you're getting a text code, don't stop there. Switch to an app. 
some kind of third-party app. If you already got third-party apps, mess around with little hardware tokens and keys and stuff. And just, you all, there's levels to this game and there's always the next one for you. You know what I'm saying? It's like a CrossFit gym. So privacy by design, kind of like your shirt there. Yeah, yeah. You know, like props to the to callous people. You can't hear the shirt, but yeah, I mean, it's a nonprofit that does a lot of great work, privacy by design, and started by the first person to own an ISP that ever pushed back against a national security letter. Everyone else just rolls and gives your information, but Nick from Calix was the first person to ever say, hey, this doesn't sound right. I'm going to talk to the FBI about this and turned it all around, which is dope. And you said three. So let me think of like, what would be the third thing to secure? I think the third thing would be to Google yourself in private browsing mode or incognito mode or whatever the mode is on your browser. That makes it, that removes all the information that you give it, that it already knows about you. And it just gives you the default search results. And see if there's anything there, like your home phone number or home address that you just don't feel comfortable sharing. There are steps you can take to remove your personally identifiable information from the internet. If, first of all, any site that lists it, you have an, a way to opt out, even if they don't advertise, right? Otherwise, they wouldn't exist. But if it was too easy, that site would have a database of zero entries. You know what I'm saying? So they got to make that money. So you could just directly ask the site, how do I opt out of this, right? Um, and it's usually a convoluted, not the hard, like sometimes it's call this phone mapping, push one for this, push two for that, push three. Other ones, it's mail us your uh your license, you know, which you should probably redact some things from. And then we'll prove that it's you and then we'll remove you. They all have some kind of way. Um, if you don't want to do all those steps, there is um, a blog post uh, and a GitHub entry called, uh, excuse my French, but it's the, the big ass list of um, data brokers um, by my friend uh, Yael, who's a reporter and writer at Consumer Reports now. But, you know, she wrote this and it's just all the things that you need to manually go through them and remove yourself. If you did one a day, you'd be doing it for years, though. There's so many of these companies. A lot of the work that you have done has focused on surveillance, particularly surveillance in communities of color. And I know there are, unfortunately, a lot of folks who kind of don't understand the danger and think like, well, you know, you wouldn't have a problem with surveillance if you weren't doing anything wrong. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that mindset and also how surveillance can lead to real harm and create a culture of fear and intimidation for people. Yeah, I mean, I'm not a superhero, you know what I'm saying? Like, I used to be a surveiller for the corporate side, and I'm Black. So I just do the same, those things, this intersection of my existence. Um, we sometimes confuse public safety with um, surveillance, Right. And there should be the public, that's us, me, you, everyone around us, and the friends we're yet to make, there should be some baseline of security for, for people and some norms there, right? And how do we create those norms as a society? Well, we decide. There are some societies where those norms are created through barbed wire and bullets, right? There's some societies where those norms are created by like, look, that's just not how we are as a people. Like, we must do this. Think about the kindness, think about the humanity of the other. So those are different ways to go at it. Surveillance is a, a military tool. It's not a, it's not a normal, it's, a, it's a, in the barbed wire and bullets camp of uh, finding out if something is wrong. And communities that live on the margins, they're pushed out there. And they're pushed out there by this like centrifugal force. And in every society, as I used to travel the world, you know, teaching in conflict zones and teaching NGOs and doing a lot of other work with my hacking skills to help people. And um, 
every group. Sometimes I can't even tell. Like, I'm like, how do you hate this group that's so hard for me to even see the difference between you and them? Uh, they don't seem to appear any difference than you. But he's like, no, you can tell by their last name or by this license plate we gave them or something. I'm like, wait, that's so strange. So, um, but there's always that group. And I'm like, well, how do you know that they're up to no good? And it's like, well, they must be. And I was like, well, do you ever talk to them? It's like, we don't need to talk to them. We watch them all the time, 24-7. And we're looking and we're going to find something wrong. <laughs> so um, I would say, like with Crypto Harlem, I often say, looking at the Black community and the multi-levels of surveillance in the Black community, I would invite it to all communities. I would say, let's not take it away from the Black community. Let's just make it even to all communities. And then on that day, everyone would be able to have a very frank conversation about how this is not a way to live, right? Um, but because it's normalized in certain communities, it's just the way it's always been. They're born into it. And once you have one, one generation that maybe resists a little, but that grows up in something, it's normalized. They don't know any different. You know, I've been to countries where I'm like, does it bother you that this is the way it is here? And they're like, it's all I know. And you could tell me stories of it being another way, but those might as well be fairy tales, right? And so um, I would just say with this level of surveillance, anyone would say, no, this is uh, too much and it's not worth any kind of perceived public safety win. I can guarantee that if somebody watches me long enough, they're going to see me doing something that meets their definition of wrong. Well, there's a lot of people and a lot of wrongs, right? And my wrong might not be your wrong, but if we have a hundred of us looking at you, one of us will be like, yeah, that's weird and that's unusual. It's not part of a pattern that I'm used to in my existence. Why does he have to, you know, rock that awesome beard and look so cool or whatever, you know? So, you know, like, um, and, and I think that's, that's what it is. It's a high level of scrutiny. And under that high level of scrutiny, weird things or apparently weird things show up. On Tuesdays at three, he's always doing this with his ear. You're like, I am? Yeah, I didn't realize if you are. You know, so like, you know, um, and if you look at societies like, you know, I. Have you been watching me? I know. It's like, <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, if you oh, look at like the Gestapo, if you look at any, you know, historical surveillance units and you go back, you know, a lot of our open records now, you look back at what they were writing and what they were finding and what they were seeing and what happened to those people. You were like, these were completely, you know, just everyday regular things that under the lens of a surveiller who's always looking for wrongs, you will find what you're looking for all the time. That's one thing I've learned in my from my former work. So with the organizations that are that are getting it right, or I guess, you know, at least asking the right questions, what do they do when making sure that technology isn't used to further marginalize or unfairly categorize and harm people of color or other, you know, groups? I usually start a conversation on this with like some pretty chill examples. Like, for example, there's soap dispensers where if you put brown hands in front of them, no soap comes out because the sensor just wasn't trained to see that hand as a human hand. So it just thinks like it's just a shadow or something and it doesn't dump the soap, right? So like, let's talk about, let's say that product. How did that happen? Well, somehow it made it all the way to market, got sold and installed, and no one ever tested it who had brown hands. <laughs> so there's an issue there where you have to say, am I creating a product for all people or just some people, maybe even accidentally. So maybe I should have examples of all people on the consumer side and on the quality assurance side and on the testing side. Then it's my team that's making this. 
you know, they're excited. We're fixing soap. You know, like someone had to make that. They're like really into that. Whatever that industry is, I don't know, but they're all about it. They have competitors and stuff. But um, if any of them had brown hands, they would have found this on day zero, right? So maybe your team just doesn't have that diversity that you think it has. And maybe by removing or not having like, you know, like oftentimes I talk about diversity and staffing. Um, people will say, well, we feel that there's a need and we understand why it's the right thing to do. And I'm like, no, no, it's not the right thing to do. It's actually just business aligned. It's going to be good for your business, for your products. And you're not going to, you know, I always say like, I say underestimated, you know, when I talk about these groups that are, that I'll be like, look, like you obviously, we've underrepresented groups in your industry, but they're also underestimated in your industry. There's experts who you'd have to beg to work here who are experts of this, who will, you know, are also diverse candidates, right? But you have to actually think like, well, where are diverse candidates? You know, there was a very famous moment where um, I think it was like Wells Fargo or someone, but it could be any bank really. During a accidental hot mic moment, this person was like, look, I believe in diversity. It was like to the staff, a meeting, but it's, it's so hard to find diverse candidates. Uh, it's so hard to find candidates that actually meet the level that we're looking for. And oftentimes it's not the candidate, it's where you're looking for them, right? Like I have a hard time finding, you know, I don't know, flying animals in the ocean, right? So you have to make sure you're, you're looking and then you just look towards the sky and they're all there. So it's literally saturated. There's not enough, but there's definitely more than you can hire. <laughs> there's definitely more than you can ever hire and you'll ever need for any particular one industry or company, right? So I would say, am I doing it right? You have to ask yourself, how is this product hurting people? How could this product hurt people? Because I believe all technology, because I love technology, right? So I believe all technology has a good and bad side. They say like a dual-edged sword or whatever, right? And, you know, like nuclear power, I always say it can run a city for pennies or it could turn a city to ashes, right? So how is our thing able to be at its worst? Like just have a, if you hired one like speculative sci-fi person on your team, they would black mirror the, that thing and they would find it for you. But you, you just have to ask yourself, like, how could this hurt people? And what are we doing to ensure that it doesn't encroach on civil liberties, on rights, on marginalized people, on, on different communities, on different ethnic groups, on different uh, passport holders or citizens, et cetera. And um, then what are we doing to ensure it doesn't or we lessen some of those harms? And that's doing it right. Otherwise, you're just accidentally doing it right and should intentionally do it right. So you sort of touched on this problem of algorithmic bias, which has, is definitely, I feel like in the last few years has kind of really become more front and center in tech. A lot more people are seeing it, talking about it. And you, you also touched on a solution being at the, while creating these products and, and whatnot, there should be more diversity in the room. What is actually happening now to fix that problem? What is happening now to create that diversity in the early stages of products. And also, like, we have so many things with algorithmic bias that are already being used by everybody now. How do we fix the things that are already out there? Let's look at algorithmic bias. So, like, you know, what is an algorithm, first of all? It's not this huge, mysterious thing. It's just basic rules, right? Uh, you know, you, you might use a streaming service and you type in something and the search doesn't just dump out every literal thing that can come out. It filters it through, well, let's show them all the results, but catered towards what they tend to watch by genre, category, language, length, whatever, right? That might be an algorithm. It's just a set of rules. And the bias in those algorithms comes from 
when we start trying to train these rules to have the best outcomes and um, that training data goes wrong or is incorrect. And to find that problem, we need to think adversarially. We have to attack the algorithm and you have to be smart enough to do that, right? You have to know enough to dismantle it and say, well, where do these outcomes come by? Because they look like it works. It always looks good. How do we know that this isn't leaning towards one way or another? And with many examples, like, for example, there was a company that's like just like we want to do better and do more blind hiring, which is good for diversity. And we want to be less biased. So we're going to have a computer help us find, like, go through stacks of resumes and find the best candidates. And the computer just ruled out all women, basically. And it did this by noticing, like, whether you had a hobby that oversaturated a higher percentile of women tended to have, or uh, you were part of a club or you did were part of a program, things that even us as human beings, we wouldn't realize like, really, like 90% of the candidates who are women for this kind of job, like this thing that doesn't seem like, you know, like, um, but the computer was fed a corpus of data, a large body of data that it's trained on. And that data is all the resumes that have ever been entered for this job. Back when maybe women couldn't even apply for that job. Back when maybe you can say, I don't like the way this person uh, looks or whatever, or I don't like their outfit and I'm not gonna hire her. So all of that, that, that hidden bias seeped in and we ended up with a robot that was more biased than a human. Right. And those are examples on the problems and the difficulties. So how do we solve it? We solve it with having people on the outside who can look for this stuff, which means algorithms have to be open, right? Most algorithms are proprietary. The good thing is, if you have an adversarial approach, you can expose most algorithms. Like not knowing what the algorithm is, by just throwing things at it, you can quickly learn, well, not quickly actually, but you can learn what the rules are, right? And then you can test those rules and assumptions and we can reverse it. Now, if you hire a woman, you're just built in She's going to be like, well, why is my resume never showing up? Right. So like you accidentally are ahead of the curve and saving yourselves many thousands or tens of thousands of hours by bringing this mindset or this living embodiment of what you're trying to protect against. Right. Which is sexism into the room. If we open our algorithms to experts like, you know, I was a judge on this Twitter thing where Twitter, the uh, social media platform, uh, news platform as well. They said, you know what, we're going to take one of our algorithms and we're going to open it up to like a bug bounty type of program, right? Uh, kind of like, and we're going to have hackers at DEF CON and anywhere else really, but we'll announce it at DEF CON, spend a couple of days messing around and see what they could find on an algorithm that's already in use and we've already checked, we found some problems with and fixed. And they found tons of stuff that they didn't fix. And that's amazing, right? And that's how we solve it. And some of the people, you know, they were like, hey, I'm looking for stuff that affects me because maybe I might wear a hijab or I might wear a head covering. And I noticed that it's biased against head coverings, which it was, uh, this image cropping thing. But other times people are just like, you know, I'm an expert and I just want to have a swing at it. And I, I believe in what is right. And I love technology that's fair. So those are a couple of different ways to come at it. For those that are that are listening to this podcast and you want to contribute, one of the ways, immediate ways that I could think of maybe, and and Bella will keep me honest here, is you can apply that to an open API and then you can run that API into a fuzzing mechanism. And for those that don't quite know what fuzzing means, it's taking sort of this word list that that it's 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 a compiled word list that has just numbers 
untold numbers of things into sort of almost like a dictionary that can apply to, say, you know, the word dress or the word red or the word resume or the word flowers or the word whatever. And you can fuzz that through the API that connects directly into these algorithms to see where they might wind up more than something else. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole bug bounty thing is a great way to opening it up to algorithms. A lot of times the rule sets, they'd be okay or they'd appreciate you looking at some algorithms, right? So there's tons of bug bounty communities out there. Just And it allows you to just get access to code and you also can see what other people are finding. In the AI space, it's heavily academic. Uh, no offense to the professors and you know uh, researchers out there. But there's a newer wave of people who are just like, hey, I'm I'm doing this in like with the hacker mindset, the bug bounty mindset, the like improve the AI mindset, the API mindset, right? Um, I think like those that makes a lot of sense. I don't know how involved in the Twitch community or platform you are, but lately there has been a big issue with basically a lack. I think that like I see this as a cybersecurity issue, but basically there is a lack of protection for creators on the platform, and folks have used like weaponized the platform to target primarily hate raids. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and they're targeting mostly black creators. What's your take on that? How do we pressure this company to step up and create a platform that is safer for their own users? I mean, it's pretty weird, I think, you know, that there's this product you can buy. Like, imagine there's like a bag of chips and they change the formula and you keep eating it. You know what I'm saying? So like, they are so lucky that this community sticks by them because there's all these other platforms they could be using. And yeah, they make money there and that's where their audience is, but... If everyone just left tomorrow, there'd be no more Twitch, right? It'd be like, you know, Tumblr lost like 50% of its users because they made a rule. Boom, right? Um, Things like that. Like OnlyFans was going to lose all their users. So they decided, oh, maybe we should back away from something that we decided on, right? But um, in, sorry, I live in New York, so nothing I could do about this little New York soundtrack coming at you. (laughs) That's that's making it life lifelike. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's real, you know. But at the end of the day, this isn't just Twitch. Twitch is just the latest manifestation of this. The internet is a horrible place, right? You know, there's a book, The Internet of Garbage. Uh, I definitely recommend it. It talks about bias and abuse online on the internet. And like tough and horrible places, like for example, a kindergarten playground is a horrible place. Bullies pick on the group that they think they can get away with the most, right? And that's usually like on the internet would be marginalized communities, right? But so if, if you're identify as a woman, you self-identify as a woman, you're like the number one community gets targeted on the internet. If you're black on the internet, like get ready. So when the bullies come, they target you first, right? So there's a lot of gaslighting that's not really happening. But once you realize it is happening, you band together. And that's where this boycott of Twitch, which I think was yesterday or the day before, happened, where the creators were just like, you know what? We're just not going to show up today. And you'll see it in the stats. You'll see it in the numbers. And imagine we did it for more than a day. And that's one way Right. But it's strange because the amount of time it takes to get a press release through all the different eyeballs and sign off on it before it can go public versus the amount of time it takes to have a hackathon where your engineers just sit down and come up with a clumsy solution. It just shows a lack of care, a lack of empathy. And that's what 
What's been really wild to me, so I, I use Twitch as a platform. I have at least some insight into into this. What's been super wild to me is that my like Twitter feed is full of all of these just regular people who know stuff about software who are developing like intermediary tools for creators to use to help offer protection. And they're doing this like over a weekend hackathon, right? Like they're just they're just putting something together. <laughs> Why isn't Twitch? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty Easy. I mean, look, if you look like, you know, as a Twitch person, not to turn this into a Twitch conversation, but it's a good examination of what's going on across all tech and as an industry. There was an issue where people were playing music in their streams that weren't cleared. Right. And so you'd get a DCMA takedown notice on this. And, you know, with YouTube, it's quite a very sophisticated system and you get a message and it's like this part of your tra- of your stream has music that appears not to be cleared. You could defend against it. You could say, oh, I'll take that part out. And they have all these tools built in to avoid what would be them getting in trouble with larger you know, music industry, motion picture industry, et cetera. Right. And Twitch's handling of that uh, expose something to me about their engineering setup and how they're, if you follow that, you're like, huh, right? And if that is what they do for something they must do under US law, and they can end up not just losing the creators and those people get sued or whatever, but they could actually lose their whole platform by not actually doing what they need to do to protect against piracy. If that's how they handle that, and it does not give me hope or faith in what they will do to protect the very people who give them a paycheck and allow them to have a platform. It's completely user-generated content. And these rules have been developed by other user-generated content platforms that have been around for decades, whole generations. They're people who weren't born when YouTube came out, right? So just follow the basic norms of the industry. And um, anyway, what will happen, I think, is all, you know, directly affected people will solve their own problems. You know, if I, I could sit down with some Python make a sloppy natural language processing tool, find all the old raids that happened, pull the chats from them, see what the commonalities are, and do some auto-blocking with a basic algorithm. Probably, you know, I could poop that out in a couple of days. It won't be perfect and beautiful. It's better than what most people have. We're not technical, and they're just sitting there, cannon fodder, right? So uh, we must do something. And it's not just this platform. All platforms will learn this lesson because people will leave. And good people will make tools to help those folks who are directly affected to protect their mental health and their emotional health. Yeah, I think for me, this is, uh, I feel, you know, I'll be candid and say, I haven't spent a ton of time in my life on the internet until sort of recently. I'm relatively new to cybersecurity, comparatively speaking. And this was one of the first instances for me where I'm looking at a company just like kind of fail at protecting its users from a cybersecurity standpoint. And then also seeing, like, I feel like this was a a protest. This was a protest that happened entirely online on the first. And, like, I am looking at this as, like you said, as sort of something that's happening not just on Twitch, but throughout the industry. And I'm curious to see how change, how users can pressure for change, particularly when it's, like you said, less about U.S. law and more about safety and even comfort. Yeah, well, I have a long list of businesses and companies and from gaming and Blizzard and, you know, dating with Grindr and like, you know, that, you know, I I try to push them a little bit in like whatever standing I have in a public way. I try to privately like reach out to engineers, the head of tech, whatever, like, hey, like what what is wrong? Like, is it a financial thing? Is it What's the roadmap look like? Like, are there some things going on in your industry? Like, what can we do to help you fix this? This is a problem. But 
you have to care, right? That's the first step. You have to actually care. You can't force someone to care. I 100% agree with that. I think it starts with caring. And to that point, I'm going to kind of make a weird hard left. So to the caring aspect, where can people hear more from you, stay up to date with your initiatives and show that they care? Um, well, you know, like you can listen to the sirens outside. It's not for me, I hope. Uh, well, you can, you know, bail me out if you care. Yeah, thank you. Those are people caring. So, yeah, I mean, I would say, first of all, it's just like listening to streams like this. So, like, thank you for even hearing my words and taking the time. We're all like, you know, rich or poor. You don't get the time back, you know, 24 hours. That's it. You just spent some time listening to this and learning about this. That means the most to me. I would just say, like, learn more about these issues, whether it's like watching a documentary like Coded Bias, which is on Netflix and anyone can watch it, or reading books like um, uh, Dark Matters by uh, Simone Brown, which is a, a research book. It's so well written, though. It talks about the history of surveillance of black folks. And it's, a, it's academic. It's very even keel. It's re- extremely well researched and, and fact checked. Um, but most of all, just like find a way to give back with your skills to something that you feel is good. That's that's all I'm doing. But I just crank it up to 11. Right. So I would just say do that same thing, you know, just like spend one hour doing that. If you want to hear about more about me, um, CryptoHarlem.com is our the website for Crypto Harlem. We have a thing there. You could donate time and just try to help us with something or you could watch our live stream on Twitch or wherever we move it to if Twitch doesn't wake up. <laughs> uh, you can, um, you know, like that's, I'm on Twitter. I'm Gemini Matt on Twitter. Um, I have open DMs. One last piece. What's one thing that people wouldn't know about you based off of your LinkedIn profile or Twitter profile? I'm an identical twin. That's not obvious. That's not on my LinkedIn profile, Twitter profile. Um, uh, I, I, I'm mostly other things about me you could guess because they're just like nerd tropes. Like I have a, I have a glass case of figurines of different things I cover, you know, like I've got a stack of challenge coins or whatever. But um, I think like, you know, a lot of people throw around the word hacker. I'm a real hacker. You know what I'm saying? Like you show me some software or hardware, I can hack it fast or slow. I can really do that. So I think like that's not something that is like evident there. I don't think that's really a common thing, but I don't think it's really useful that more anymore. It used to need to be useful, but now I think that. It doesn't have to be. But yeah, that's that. I don't know. I'm trying to think of uh, cool stuff, but that's it. I'm vegan. Uh, I believe in animal rights. You don't have to, but I don't eat those things. Uh, and um, that's it. Let those let those little cartoon bunnies hop away. Matt, thank you so much. I, I had such a blast speaking with you. And this has been a blast. Thank you. I learned a ton, you know, and so I just can't thank you enough for, for joining. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for ranting about Twitch with me. I appreciated that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm here for it. You know, I appreciate y'all. But like when we see injustice, we must speak up. Right. So I appreciate you. Cloud cybersecurity is a large penetration point for malicious actors. See how your organization can be protected at Synac.com. That's S-Y-N-A-C-K dot com. Check out the show notes to learn more.